Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Crane. I'm chatting with Andrew Legg about his found footage sci-fi Lola. So thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, so first up, I think um, this film continues what has been just a really lovely set of artistic pieces that are creative and engaging that you have set out into the world that I have been really enjoying over the years. Um, and and you can really see the the growth and the development from one project to another. And you, you maintain this very strong visual style Um like it's it's it, it it was really a joy to watch and and like a really natural evolution from what I had seen of yours before. Um, I was just wondering, in curating that style yourself as a filmmaker, what are your influences? How do you find that voice? Because it, like as someone watching it, it it feels very strong. But like your your voice as an author, it's a very um defined uh visual style and. Um, manner of storytelling and, and it's really lovely to watch I think it's probably just created out of necessity like I think that I like doing sci-fi and I like kind of fantastical and I like period so I like that, that kind of thing like I like trying to make a movie that goes into another world and it's quite hard to do that on a low budget so I think with my shorts I developed the aesthetic because it was cheaper like to shoot on black and white is ch- was cheaper because you don't have to do as much. Like you can get, you can hide more stuff in terms of your design work and all that. Uh, you're already like going black and white. You're already kind of transformed into a different world. And um, so that's one reason. And then I think we just like the, the aesthetic. Like I like old cameras and I like shooting on film. And I like, we were lucky in Dunleary because we were kind of the last year to get to shoot on 16 mil and edit on Steambacks. And I just love that. It's just much, It's to me, it's much more exciting. So I think it's all just kind of like accidental in a way. It's just a nice, it's just an aesthetic I like. So I just kind of work in it. Gorgeous. If that makes sense. Um, like with Henry Cavendish, my first short, like I did after college, it was much easier to do that as a silent film because it meant it cut out the whole, like, it just meant that I could work with a cool composer, get a really nice piano score, but it cut out the whole um, expense and stuff of doing, like, a really cool soundtrack. Um, so it's all necessity, I think. Not to be too cynical, but it also plays very well to an international audience, so you're going to do very well at European festivals, because if you have, like, the bare minimum of dialogue, it's much easier to watch and engage with. Yeah, I went to the, there is quite a lot of dialogue in Lola, I think, isn't there? It's quite, like... It's quite a lot of verbs. I'd probably like to have less in a way. Like it'd be like nice to have more musical sequences. Um, because it's interesting because I was watching it with Rotterdam a few weeks ago, and I think we didn't have any subtitles, and I think that was tricky for the audience. Music plays such a, he- a heavy role in um in all of your work. I think I went to see a live orchestra playing to the Lactating Automaton, and that was yeah, the Lactating Automaton and and Henry Cavendish. We did a live orchestra and then we had Foley, we had Quiva Doyle, um, had like three Foley artists on the stage as well doing all the sound. That was amazing. Like it really it lent fun. itself to that again, like that that style. Like And it, it it's fabulous to watch because you're really, as a viewer, sucked into a completely different world. But I, I kind of want to go back to more of your 
um, your your the stories that you're drawn to. Where do you find your characters from or how do you how do you curate these worlds in your minds before you start to realize? So Lola would have started would have come out of Chronoscope in a way, because Chronoscope was a documentary about this scientist who could see into the past. So that was kind of the starting point for the feature of Lola, like this, the idea of the scientist and making this machine. And then we liked the, like I, it would, it kind of just from a store, from a plot kind of potential point of view, it was more interesting that you could see into the future. There was a lot more potential for that in a feature film. So I think her, her character kind of arrived first, the idea of this, this, this woman, um, seeing into the making the machines the future and then i think the sisters came a little later on like they, they did that she had a sister and then they did that they had two kind of opposing ultimately opposing views of of how they used the machine and i guess it's just kind of layered isn't it like you would do little characters like you start with one and then you come up with more and you kind of layer it i think it's just layering it it's weird actually because the character stuff with lola i didn't really really kind of uh, click with what they were going to be until the last kind of draft. It's funny. And what is your process there? Do you um, come bring together a treatment and get development funding? Do you write the script first before you let anyone else in? Do you get feedback at certain points? How do you how do you work on your drafts essentially? Uh, it's horrible. It's like throwing poo at a wall and seeing what sticks. So so usually I I'm bashing around the treatment and just throwing ideas down and and stuff isn't really working and then I'm not very good like I'm not very methodical I'm not a very good writer like it's kind of quite tricky for me so I just keep on throwing ideas down until until I have something that I think works um but but with me it's always I I always try and do like a detailed treatment first before I go near a script because otherwise it just gets stuck on page six and wouldn't get any further. Um, but I find that the whole process very difficult. So my process, I guess, would be trying to put a wall, seeing what sticks, getting a treatment, and then once we've got a treatment, then trying to get it into a draft stage. But Lola was particularly hard because it was like, it wasn't just trying to write a normal treatment, it was trying to motivate the camera in every scene, which was excruciating because it meant that we couldn't really do like really in, intimate character stuff because you'd be like, well, why would they be filming this? I remember it was just torture. It was horrendous. And actually the draft of Lola that we shot had quite a lot less than what's in the movie. So when we were in post, we we, we were missing scenes. We felt we were missing scenes and stuff with the characters. So we actually put in quite a few more scenes, which were done with... Um, um, with audio only because it was because it was um because we didn't have any money and also it was it was locked down so we couldn't get our actors back so I don't know if you notice in Lola there's quite a few scenes with like the cameras on the pair of shoes or it's on like a bit of sludgy film um that was just that was kind of budget budgetary reasons <laughs> that is genius because I think the format does I mean no like I know you were saying about the the kind of issues with that format but actually that's not so I I thought that was this it, it very conceptual artistic choice where you know you're you're leading the audience to create their own visuals but actually that's that's amazing that 
But the thing about this is it's probably, and I don't want to say too much, so I'm just being very careful about what I say. One of the most justified um, formats of the fine footage genre that I've seen. It's one of the ones that are, you're like, actually, this makes a lot more logical sense watching it as a viewer. Because I think the whole thing, if you're watching any of them, be them horror or mockumentary, like the, or a comedy mockumentary, you're always kind of questioning the logic of like, who edited this? <laughs> and actually, it's a really nice sort of, um, uh, yeah, logic to it that it's, and it, and it works really well. And even the justification of, you know, these are, these are two sisters who, who are kind of compiling footage throughout the film and you do see that and you see them holding the footage it's very um like the logic is sounder than I've ever seen it so you, oh, you that's did good. a good job that, that's quite good to hear because we were always struggling with that like there are scenes in it that I watch I go really do we would she be filming that particularly towards the end of the movie um but it's good that you get that yeah because there is a reason like it, it you couldn't tell it in any other way yeah. Because of the because of the kind of reveal in it. And I also think like what you've done is create a really interesting world with complex time travel style logic. And then the richness of the characters, you're sort of swept up in the story as a viewer anyway, which is which is hard enough to do again with the constraints of like that logic like I found myself swept up in it so much that I wasn't questioning logic as much as I would in something maybe that I wasn't as emotionally invested in which was a really that's cool really that's great. that's great I mean the other thing that we had in her favour is um, <clears throat> she was also able to because it's obviously assembled together from her own footage but she was also able to go to newsreels and, and, and butcher them splice them up um so that helped us a lot because it got us out of the first person thing that you would have in a normal fan footage, like say Cloverfield, where it's just always with the character. We we could we could go into kind of like the voice of God in a way by her just getting the pathé, you know, like the stuff when they're arrested and stuff. That's all like kind of pathé stuff. So that was helpful. And it was great for the visual storytelling nature of it, but it really worked again because it's happening in such a kind of pivotal time. So the this film does an amazing job of of structuring all these um kind of very personal elements and these the, these bigger moments of history and then the sort of uh like it's set around World War Two so they're they're looking into the future so we're allowed to say this because this is the premise but there is you know things start to change and they do start to use this to alter the the course of history and then the plot happens in a way so um just tell me a little bit about how you integrated all the archival footage like was that as expensive as shooting your own stuff or did you get good deals like how how do you go about getting that um i expense wise no because i think i because it is expensive but no way is it as expensive as shooting stuff um because you especially when you get archival footage which is which is extras and stuff um not extras like like crowds because you would just never even with a huge footage, I always find big crowds scenes and period films can look a little bit costumey. They never look as real as the real people and their faces and everything. But in terms of the process, what we did was we had our script and then we went into the archive 
once our script was kind of finished. So this was like kind of in pre-production. Um, and just sort of going through the archives for each scene where we we're going to be using archive um, with our search parameters um, and finding the footage. So like for when Hitler visits um, the lab, it was, uh, um, uh, what we did was we, we, um, we found footage of Hitler in a factory um, like went through, went through like loads and loads of different clips of Hitler. I fa finally found footage of Hitler coming to look at the Volkswagen factory um, at a Beetle. And then we shot listed our shots, kind of reverse engineered our shots into the Hitler scene, if that makes sense. So we framed up our shots, set up our whole sequence of shots into his, sort of, so that we'd be able to cut the Hitler stuff into that, if that makes sense. And then and then the school came out with the stuff. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, so you're kind of reverse engineering it and having it as much more of an organic process as well that they feed into one another, which is fascinating because there is a real flow to the to the story. Like you are, you are yeah. It, it was all reverse engineering. So another a better, probably a better example is the scene where um, the two sisters are arrested halfway through the movie, and we've got this, we've got the kind of the mob outside the courthouse with the balloon, yeah. um, which is Nazi horse. So that was just a kind of happy accident. Like I was looking for footage of like kind of an angry mob outside a courthouse in London. I couldn't find it, but then I eventually found this footage of the guys with the balloons. And um, we we basically, um, what I loved about the balloon thing was that it, it, it was going to allow our edit to kind of follow the balloon. And so you kind of, you can use the, the jump of the balloon to motivate your edit your cuts um so the, so that's so once i had all that for the balloon we then went and did a location scout in in dublin because that's footage is obviously from london and found a very similar building with the archway and stuff and set up our extras so it was kind of matching the movements in the archival footage and then we our production designer birdie murphy got a replica balloon like the one in the footage and had our slogan on it which was nazi horse and then we in post we were able to take the slogan that was on our practical balloon that we shot and uh digitally track it onto the archival footage balloon so the balloons matched. And then it kind of all just matched in really well. Um so that would be an idea that would again would be an example of like finding finding um archival footage, planning the shoot around the archival footage that we had. And so you reverse engineering and then editing it all together. And then it was just a case of grading. Again, we had the advantage in this movie of, because um, we were shooting it all on film, the, the, the rushes came back quite matching already quite well to the archive. So it was really just kind of grading and stuff. Um, so that that's fascinating. And tell me then about the score. So it was Neil Hannon was the composer. There was original music. There's... Um, like there's some very striking uh, Bob Dylan and David Bowie songs. How how does it how do you go about like integrating music in the story because it's always such a it's such a vital part of your films. And then um, tell me a little bit about kind of like doing the the alternate future music slash past um, and and how about how that came about as well. Okay, yeah, that was fun. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so so the draft. 
where I felt like I kind of had a break to because I was working on different drafts of this this film for a couple of years, and the draft where I felt we'd kind of broken through was um, because in the, an earlier draft of the of the movie, the machine couldn't see that far into the future. I think it could only see like a month or two months or something. And then, um, but I always loved, I, in the script, there was always this idea that, that the sisters were, were kind of musicians as well. And then one time I, I, I came up with this idea that actually the machine could see far in, but like, you know, like not like kind of grab glimpses. So like if there was some massive hit from the future, the idea that this massive hit would have been broadcast so many times and like all around the world that somehow Lola was able to pick up those broadcasts. So I had this idea that they were able to pick up like pop music from like the 60s and 70s. And that kind of really helped the script because then it was like, it suddenly meant that you had these women who were kind of not really time traveling, but they were they were being exposed to like culture and 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 media from from a different era and how that would influence them and stuff like that. Um, so that was great then in terms of music because it meant that the women in the story, like our two characters who are, who are musicians, were able to write their own music. But it was like writing music that wasn't like in the forties, but it was kind of in the forties. But it was they were writing music in the forties, but they were also influenced by like Bowie and stuff. So the idea that they'd have like these little pop influences and stuff in their music. So that was one strand of music, and that's what you hear at, at the start of the movie, um, and then. Then the second strand was um, was the idea of music from a future, but it's not our future because because obviously they, they they you know they they, they distort whatever they uh, they 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 start changing the future inadvertently, so that creates these new futures. So then we had new, so we had pop music from parallel universes, and one of the parallel universes is is this fascist universe. So the idea that we're getting fascist pop songs. So that was all kind of in in the script, and we we loved those ideas. Um, so then it was uh, then Alan Marr, the producer, he he was great, and he was like he was like you should get Neil Hannon. It hadn't even occurred to me that we could get Neil Hannon, and Alan suggested Neil. So we met with Neil, and um, he he was very much uh, it was interesting meeting him because he 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 just wanted to do that he wanted to do the score or nothing. Like I think he didn't want to just what write one pop song for the film. He wanted to do everything, which is perfect because it meant that we could get him to do all the music that the women write at the start of the movie, which is influenced by media. Uh, and then he could write future music, but it was futuristic music from a universe where David Bowie didn't exist, but a kind of like a fascist version of a Bowie. So I think all that appealed to his sense of humor and also like just the kind of the fun that he was able to play with different styles and stuff. Um, and I remember kind of early on then when we were working on the music videos, he, he, he was sending me stuff like, he sent me a, uh, a YouTube clip of somebody in a museum in Berlin playing a 1920s, uh, late 1920s synthesizer, which is all like valves and stuff that were making the sounds, called the Tritonium. Um, so that that made this really strange kind of haunting sound. And that's what that's the instrument that we use at the at the opening of the movie, because Thomasina has built her own Tritonium, which you see her playing. Um, so he wrote this lovely kind of duet piece, which is Tritonium and a piano played together. Um, and then it went from there. And then he sent he, he sent this amazing fascist pop song, The Sound of Marching Feet, which is by Reginald Watson. Um, and I was kind of expecting like 
you know, like, because in the script, there was just going to be a kind of 10 second clip of the song was all we were going to hear. And he just sent me this whole amazing, brilliant, like full, full pop song, um, like two weeks before we shot the film. Um, so then we obviously wanted to, you know, like when we were in the edit, we, we actually found a much a way that we could really use that song to its full with this kind of fascist newsreel that's put together. Um, and then the other songs that he wrote for the movie, he wrote he wrote well into like when we were in. So he wrote like three or four songs before we shot the film, which was great, like with the Santa Marching Feast and also the Truett Duet. Um, and obviously the song that Mars sings, because obviously that's be written before the film. And then Stephanie learned that song. Um, um, and so it meant that we could have playback and all that. And then he did, he, he and Keen Boylan did the, did the rearrangement of the Kink song, Girl, You Really Got Me. So that was, again, the idea of these women playing Girl, You Really Got Me, the 60s song with a 40s swing band, which we loved. So that was Keen Boylan's band. Um, and then in post-production, there was a few more songs written. So like To The Gallows, originally that scene in the script was just going to be the kind of newsreel, kind of very, very kind of real, just newsreel footage um, of the scene. But um, it needed music. And so it seemed like a wonderful opportunity to bring Reginald Watson back for his kind of finale. Um, and that was it. And then there's Elgar and stuff in there as well. But the music was the most fun we had with the film and and sound mixing that all down. Because it does, it gives this um just brilliant flavour and life and, and really kind of places it and, and it's kind of quirky, but it's something that reaches out to everybody and gives the the characters you know their passion for music their interest in it because like even the fact that they're women and they're just they they love music because like you know it's one of those tropes is the the obsessive music person who's always a dude you know like in La La Land and High Fidelity and things like that but it's nice to see the roles reverse and have a woman go like I'm gonna play you some great tunes have a listen to her romantic interest because it's it's like it's almost the cliche the other way around um, but no, it's it's just as a viewer, it's just something that really kind of brings you on that journey and connects with you straight away. Um, so just tell me a little bit about um, the development of this film, sort of the production elements of this film. So we're kind of touching on the, the creative bits, but I just want to go into the practical nature of it. So Screen Ireland was a funder scheme. So was it under development first? Did you show pitch documents was it co-production funding how did this sort of get off the ground um i think screen Ireland have been really good to me like just in terms of supporting me um and then we started out with like a tree you know just like a pitchy idea which I, which was very early on i went in with alan it went on for a while because the drafts were like it was hard to kind of crack the draft that, that we wanted to make we had some earlier drafts which were awful, 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 awful drafts, which, you know, I'm just, thank goodness, we, you know, they weren't made or anything. Um, so it's just kind of doing drafts and until we kind of cracked the draft we wanted. And as I said earlier, like it was the music element that for me cracked it. Um, and then it was, it was probably what every first time feature filmmaker tries to like we're trying to get a, a bigger budget but nobody was going to fund us like like screen ireland were going to support us but it was going to be very difficult to get any private money or money abroad so that kind of 
restrict this down to the kind of million, just over a million, like the 1.2 million mark, because that's where you're going to land if you if you're work if you're doing a Screen Ireland production plus tax credits plus a little bit of money from abroad. I think you land around 1.2. Um so that's so then it was so that was like a year before. So then I think when we knew we weren't going to get like, because I think originally we wanted to get like two and a half million. And when we realized we weren't going to get two and a half million, we just, I just simplified the script, like, like kept it, kept more of it in that house, just honed down extras and stuff like that. um, And tried to rewrite the script to, to the low budget. um, And then the process was getting Screen Ireland. Then we got, that automatically unlocks the tax credits in Ireland. And then we got, we went to Wales. So we ended up doing a UK Ireland co-production. So the Welsh Film Fund gave us money. And then Bankside was our sales agent. They came on board about a year before production and they put, um, they put a little small amount of gap money in as well. And that brought it up to about one point. I think, I think the budget was about 1.3 million. Um, so that was it. But it's very small for film, particularly when we were doing periods. Like in the earlier draft of the script, we had like way more, you know, like stunt sequences and period cars and stuff. And all that went out the window. Um, and then um, uh, what else was there? Um, it was three and a half week shoot, which wasn't very much. No. Especially and, because of what you had to get. And and how you had to kind of inter interplay it into the archival footage as well. Yeah, I mean we had one advantage there that we didn't have to shoot all the all the archival stuff. So I think we ended up I think with the script we probably had to shoot over those three weeks, we probably had to shoot sixty minutes of film footage. And it's quite a short film as well. So the film is eighty minutes long, but we had to shoot sixty minutes. So we so the other twenty minutes, say, or fifteen minutes, say was archive so that was a little bit helpful um the biggest problem or kind of difficulty i have or had with doing like a first feature is like like as a first feature filmmaker you just like make loads of mistakes like every day you're just making loads of mistakes and then you get the rushes back and you're looking at your mistakes and going oh no that's awful and just interest what would that be because i would i would consider you to be so accomplished and the short films that you have been made have been made on such a gorgeous high scale and to this this polished perfection that I'm surprised to hear you say that. Oh no, God, no, no, no. I feel riddled with mistakes and through my short films, I was always doing pickups and everything. Because it's kind of funny, like the, the, the filmmaking process for me, it's like sometimes you need, you, you kind of have to shoot. Like I could have spent another year bashing the script below around, and I don't think I would have cracked it. I you have, kind of for me, you kind of have to shoot it, yeah, uh, to to work it out. In a way, it's like you have to start a fight to know how you're going to win it. If that makes sense, is that the expression? I don't know, but it's like it's like you have to jump. Like you're kind of jumping out of a building and then trying to build a parachute as you as you're falling. Um, so it's like. Because with Lola as well, like I wasn't totally sure how we were going to block the, the scenes up because it wasn't a traditional, uh, it wasn't just a traditional drama where you're just going to be going in and, and covering it in a certain way. It was like the scenes had to be kind of covered so it felt like a documentary. But then you also, 
had quite important beats to get in the scenes as well. Um, and that was difficult. Um, and then the other problem for making Lola as well was it wasn't, it doesn't really have any peer as a movie. Like we weren't able to, kind like you can kind of reference a fan footage film a little bit, but not really because it's, it's in a way it's not really a fan footage film as as you said at the start of the film because it's it's been um, it's been shaped and sculpted like it's been edited together by the protagonist so it's, yeah. it's not like she's just left the camera running for ninety minutes being chased by a monster and then we find the camera and we have the story all there it was like she's she's edited this film um, very carefully she probably spent three or four months editing it in order to tell the story in a very deliberate way. So so it was it was weird. So we didn't really have reference points, which meant that when we did go and shoot it initially, the stuff that came back for me did not work at all. It it felt really drama drama y. Um and we ended up having to in the edit when the first few weeks of the edit was hell because we were just looking at the stuff and it it didn't it didn't cost it felt drama y we had to invent so much in the edit, I think, um, to 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 get around the problems of the drama elements and the missing bits. So, like to give you an example, in the movie, the the court martial. You know, when the sisters are court martialed. Yeah. So that that was originally a two page um, scene. You know, two pages of dialogue and script with the judge and everything, and it just. To me, it just felt too theatrical. This, first of all, the idea that they that that they would have filmed the court scene, I was didn't quite believe, um, because they didn't they didn't really, um, and it just it's just everything about it felt wrong. It felt like theatre, and then also it's like actually you realise when you're in there, you actually don't need any of that dialogue because because you look at the scene and just the picture and you know what's going on. Yeah. So the the dialogue was totally redundant. So there was a lot of that in, in the edit of like going just like this doesn't work, this is drama, but but then actually re you know, reframing that that the courtroom scene now, like it still looks a little bit theatrical to me just because of the that framing is very perfect. Which was kind of annoying because I was I referenced when we did that scene, I was referencing photographs from the period of court martials and we framed it up exactly like a photograph of a of a court martial, like a real photograph of court martial. We didn't use any lighting in it, but it was this really sunny day. So the light is kind of streaming in in this ridiculously theatrical manner. And you know, it's weird. It's weird. Like you think something in your head is going to work, and then it doesn't. Yeah, so it's weird. So you, so you think I was convinced that it was going to work brilliantly, and it was going to feel real and natural with the natural lighting and everything like that, and then. And then you look at it in the head and it's like, oh, no, it feels like we're in the theater here. Um, so that was that was kind of interesting. So then we spent the whole edit basically recutting stuff, you know, like uh, getting rid of like bits of dialogue and all that stuff. And then because we'd done all that, we were suddenly missing loads of stuff. So then we had to invent ways of 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 telling this bit of the story where we mightn't have the actors. But then I was kind of thinking like, for us, it was quite useful because that's how Mars would have done it. Like when Mars was editing this film together, she wouldn't have had everything. She would have been in the exact same position as us. So she would have had to tell the story with with little tricks, like, you know, the animation shot of a map 
with the the things moving around and the voiceover. That was that was an editing invention because we were just missing that kind of vital kind of you know your your exposition scene at the start of a caper film where they lay out their plan. Yeah. Um, uh, we just we hadn't shot that, so so that was like an edit thing. So it was very much, I suppose, what I'm saying is that I guess what set setting out to make the production, uh, you had one idea in your head, and then that went out the window, and then the edit was all about rewriting the entire thing. It's more how the documentary format works, so it suited the form. How did you feel about sustaining the length, like that length of narrative as well? Like it's it's quite a, it's quite a hard one to to, to really sort of capture and and like and you were saying some things played out differently when you from the page to to how they manifested on screen. So how do you mean? Do you mean that it's quite short, or you think it's quite long? No, no, no. I'm like, how did you find like taking the leap from doing shorts to sustaining the narrative of the? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's fine. I in a way, I think a short film is harder. Like I have a harder job writing shorts than a feature because shorts, I think, are really hard to make. Really, because you're kind of like. You, you don't have any time for character, you know, for setting up characters or like you have to do everything. I think it's amazing. I, I think it's really easier, like in a way, when you've got more time. It's like that expression about somebody said, you know, when they wrote a letter, they apologized that the letter was so long. They didn't have time to write a short letter. And so I didn't have a problem with that. Um... Uh, if I was to do if I was to do another film now and I had a choice between a long one or a short one, I'd prefer to do the long one. Find it easier. Also, because I think because also I think it's probably as well like we're so used to, we watch feature films, so we're so used to that form. Like we'd watch a lot more feature films than short films, so it's just a form that's more kind of that I think that we that we understand better. I think. Interesting. What do you think? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I suppose like I have never, I have never done a long film, and I would, I, I also think you're right. Like we don't, there is no set form for short films. Like you could have it as a two hander dialogue back and forth. You could have it solely visual. You could like it's just yeah, it's so up in the air that, but it is much harder to get an idea across, and like that as well. Like it's easier to, to and but you also have to put all the setup into like you know doing the sets, getting everything there, but. It's, just being utilized for such a short period of time yeah yeah totally i remember th- thinking that with 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 like henry captain dish because we had loads of costume changes and everything and i was thinking god like we've got like our costume like our whole wardrobe was as almost as big as a wardrobe on a on a feature set it was massive like we had this whole room full of things um so suddenly that you're just there like you have it all yeah exactly you have everything in place you've built everything and then and then but you only do for like six days. We used to work in film base myself and Stephen, the editor of Film Ireland now. And there was a poster for Henry Cavendish in film base. Mm. It was so fabulous and it was so well put together. But like that as well, the, I suppose, yeah, the, the it isn't it like that one. That it was the silent film element, but like again, a classic nod back to important things of, of history. How do you feel like the response is? 
to taking things that are historically of note. Do you know, like a, like a movie style, like that silent era or going back to actual history, history like um, chronoscope, like the feedback, you know, because you have people that are so passionate about it. They're like, oh, they wouldn't have done that. Do you know, like that know so much about it and that are so protective and careful about it. Or would people are they mostly grateful that you've tipped your hat to it? Henry Cavendish was really David Robinson. He's uh, he's a world kind of expert on cha- on Chaplin, and he 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 was the director of the Port and Sound Film Festival. He's a huge fan of Henry Cavendish. He loved it passionately, really passionately. Um, and I remember he didn't like Chronoscope at all. But the fact that he told you that as well. <laughs> oh, well, I like that. It's good when people do that. But the reason he didn't like Chronoscope was because he didn't believe it, I think. He believed Henry, like, I think Henry was, yeah, I think a couple of the film history, I think they thought the sound was too bad in Chronoscope. They pointed out that actually people, people were able to record really good quality sound in the 1930s and 40s. And we totally had this really, like, crunchy sound and they didn't like that. Um, I didn't I didn't repeat that mistake with with Lola actually because we really went we really worked hard to create really beautiful sound for Lola okay uh, like because the temptation with Lola was to do like really crunchy sound and that you wouldn't you know the barely audible and stuff and it it was interesting because actually the first day of the sound edit we were trying to crunch up the sound and we were trying to do the mix in mono. And it it we we spent like half a day doing that, and then we started watching the movie, and it was awful. It was so flat. It was like it was like a kind of it was like a, you put this kind of lead weight on the movie, and you're just pulling it down, and you're just watching this thing. Like we like the whole uh, sequence with the girl you really got me. We we mixed it in mono because that's because it's meant to be like a newsreel, and it was just it it was like. It was like you just smashed the hole in the budget of the movie and took like, you know, like reduced the budget by a factor of ten. Like it was awful. Um, and so then to the, to to, to si- Simon and was I sound mixer and to delight. I said, no way, we're not doing this. We're gonna we're gonna um, you know we're gonna do really really beautiful sound. But actually, what he did, which is quite cool, is he did um, he does uh, the start of that kink sequence is actually in mono, and then what happens is once Mara starts singing the song it it's it suddenly goes into five five one sound and so there's there's kind of artistic license there where you just explode out into this amazing sound um but that's kind of that's a tangent so going back to the guys yeah so i'd say like the purists would probably hate lol i think they liked henry cavendish because it was quite it was very in its style it was just this is a silent film and it was kind of made like we didn't move the camera at all. Like we were kind of going for this very like traditional kind of thing. So they like that. I'd say they probably hate Lola because we do break rules a lot in Lola and, and stuff. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So that's uh, the, the audience will tell because it is it is fabulous. That, but you are existing in this kind of alternate universe, which I think you are allowed. And music plays such a pivotal point of it. And they're um avid inventors so you don't have to go into the logistics logistics so i said that there's plenty to be forgiven and um, tell me about the edit process then so you it sounds like it was a lot more lengthy than if this was a standard just shooting plop together 
Oh my God, it was awful. I think poor Colin was like in a trauma. I must have been traumatized, but I think it it started in October, early October, and we edited it till April with wow. like some breaks, like Christmas breaks and stuff. It was awful. And I think the in this in the in the schedule, it was like going to be an eight week edit. We expect them to have like people expecting a, a cut by Christmas, but the reality was by Christmas we had this awful awful cut that was so bad that when i watched it i get nausea and have to hide behind the sofa in the edit room awful um and then we did loads of little pickups like on my bolex what was great actually was because we shot this film on my bolex i had my bolex and i could just go out and grab stuff like the you know the, the the scene with the maps or like we did some extra stuff with rory um we were able to just try out loads of audio stuff with the actresses on Zoom and then record it properly in ADR, but like just test stuff. They were, they were, so that was all just like, so, so the edit was, I think after Christmas, we started being able to kind of find ways with it, like it find, finding the movie. But I remember it being really awful, the edit. And I remember having a conversation with Colin and I think what we were both saying about it was that it was like it didn't have any self-confidence. It was just, this plodding kind of with the film just because we were we were trying to cut the script and it wasn't working so we had to throw the script out the window and 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 rewrite it like in a way like and yeah so so that was the editing so the editing process was that and then the editing process was also a lot of like we'd done a lot of archive research before we shot the film but we were still we were still like until the probably the day before we caught we locked the cut in april we were still like going to archives and talking to steve our archive researcher and Carl and i were both going on to ap and trying to find shots to put into the movie um yeah. I, so i suppose I'll give you another example like in the film there's a sequence where Mars plays um sings girl you really got me in the shooting script that was just going to be very simple newsreel of Mars in a uh, kind of nightclub in London, um, uh, kind of hijacking the stage and doing the song, like this kind of fun scene. And then this kind of, and everyone dances and the band join in and you have this kind of dancing. So that was the shooting script. And we basically shot that scene with them all having this kind of dance. But the problem is when you, it's like 15 extras was all we could afford. You're in a small location and stuff. There's only so many angles we could do because it's meant to be newsreel. So when you actually, when we cut that together initially, it's like this four minute scene of them just dancing and singing, you really got me. And after two minutes, it's just, you just want to get out of there. It's like, it just goes to scene. It's great song and stuff, but it's still, it goes flat. Um, so in the edit, we we came out, and this was in the script, the idea that this song becomes a, a kind of anthem. Like the, the Mara sings a song in the, in, in the club, it's on a newsreel, and then, but people see it on the newsreel and it becomes this kind of like anthem of the era. Like everyone is singing, girl, you really got me. And it defines the age. So that was like the always the idea in the script, yeah. but it was how to present that. So then we were in the edit and we, we cut the scene and we, we then did the whole like visual thing where the, the song, uh, you really got me becomes a slogan of the time. And we manipulated like the footage, you know, with the, it's on the bus and it's on the, the billboards. And there's like the Winston Churchill kind of pointing with the, with you really got me. So that was something that we created in the edit. That's amazing because that 
that those and in the thing that you were describing as well before with the animation like they're the things that really give this film like a, a good solid pacing and keeps it like visually engaging and and kind of gets that kind of like modern desire for something happening on screen all the time exactly but, exactly. but like, and, and, it, and it gives like a, a kind of power and oomph to the to the story that you're not kind of like dragged down into these scenes so it's it, that's amazing that you found that because like that was one of my favorite pieces like or those elements of of the thing because you're just entertained the whole way there's always something the, happening yeah exactly and and that was something i discovered as well i remember thinking in the edit like you go out and you do like a pickup and you get some shots like um I don't know, like the shots of my little girl. So those two girls in my film are my girls. Um, so you get you get loads of footage of those, and you'd find that the edit just swallows up your your shots. Like so, you might spend a weekend, and you might come back with four or five shots, and you stick them. And that was what was wonderful was the pickups. I could do these with my kids on the Bolex and stuff, and then I developed the footage at home in the bathtub, and then we'd I stick it into an envelope and post it to to cine lab and we get this they'd scan it and we get the rushes back so that was the process it was very nice and then we get this stuff this lovely like home processed film look and we'd stick it into the edit and it was mad yeah because you get like 10 like cool little shots and then you just they just get swallowed up into the edit into the movie and they they'd improve that scene you know that sequence that you're working on a little bit but then you'd still have like you know another 60 minutes of you know scenes that needed more shots and that they just swallow it i always thought of it as a, like this kind of beast just swallowing up these shots because you because some of the shots in the film will only you'd only get like three or four seconds out of them and then you need to you need to move on you need to cut you need to move on so it was like that it was like this hungry monster just eating up eating up the shots that's fascinating. Like it's amazing to learn this much about your process as well, because when something is on screen, and to hear about the the existential crises that were happening behind the scenes, um, because you know, like what's what's on what we watched or what we will get to watch, is so polished and fabulous and and big and feels so enormous that it's it's wondering just just out of interest if Alan had come back in April and said, oh my god, I found a couple of hundred thousand in Finland. There, we've a check here. Would you have at that point with all those little bits in there? And actually, probably you were benefited hugely from the fact that the edit process took so long. Would you do anything differently? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that the end sequence for me, there's always like, I don't know if you agree with this. Do you know the scene when Hitler comes and then, um, that there's kind of the explosion and all that, and then there's the Morris. I'm not going to give away too much of the plot here, but you know what happens with Morris yeah. and everything. That scene, I think, to me, there's beats missing there, and that's something that would have been nice to, you know, just like where, what happens to Hitler. I had this whole scene, like, that I want to do where Hitler gets kind of scrambled out of the building and put into a cougar wagon and um you know mars just the beats of what she's doing and her being caught and stuff i think that feels a little rushed to me that sequence um and i think so that was something and i think also just from clarity what do you think would no, you agree I, with that i'd like there, there's so much happening and i'm kind of like focusing on the sisters the relationship what's going to happen how do you come back from, do you know like all those elements that i'm probably distracted wrapped up in that as someone who's watched for the first time 
but I am like that's good. Um, other stuff, yeah, I probably would have liked to if I got doing pickups at that stage. We would have liked to get more with the women, but the problem was that I think everyone was a bit exhausted. I'd say Colin was like, <laughs> I think had enough, and also he was going on to Asia at that point. So if we'd done any, if we had got a magic check, we would have lost our editor, and I wouldn't have liked to have got somebody else because I think he was brilliant. Um. So we'd have then had to wait for him to do Asia. And then, so it would have been like dining tools for six months. So I don't know. I think in a way, like it's that thing, you just at that stage, you're just kind of abandoning your movie. Yeah, that's always the case. Everyone I'd say feels like that. Like we mm. just oh, I have to drop tools now and, and move on to the next thing. Um, mm. But that is that is amazing. Thank you so much for chatting with us. And then listen, thank you so much. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Okay. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.